You're listening to Matt Walsh on demand. Christmas to you. Thanks for listening. It's uh, the Matt Walsh podcast, Matt Walsh On Demand. I am Matt Walsh. So earlier in the week, I posted something on Facebook, a, a news story on the blaze. Um, Samuel L. Jackson is trying to get another ice bucket challenge-esque thing going on on, you, on, uh, on the internet involving celebrities. And um, what he wants to do is he wants to get his fellow celebrities to sing about racist police. In a, in a video message posted to Facebook on Saturday, Jackson called on the rich and famous to start a viral trend like the Ice Bucket Challenge, um, except instead of fundraising to cure a debilitating disease, Jackson wants to protest the police. So he says, all you celebrities out there poured ice water on your head. Here's a chance to do something else. And then he launched into a song, and I guess um, I guess the idea is that he he sings the first verse of it and then... And then other celebrities would come in, sing the next verse. I don't know exactly. I don't know if any other celebrities have joined in yet. But this is, I'm not going to sing his verse, but this is, um, this is what it, it said. I can hear the neighbor crying, I can't breathe. Now I'm in the struggle and I can't leave. Calling out the violence of the racist police. We ain't going to stop till people, people are free. We ain't going to stop till people are, people are free. I'm just... <laughs> This is what I said on Facebook, and of course some people were uh, upset, but I'm just so sick of this racist police thing. And I'm so sick of, till people are free? Who's not free in America? Everybody is free. Unless you're in prison, everybody is free. We all have equal rights, we all have equal justice under the law. Well, I say we all, unborn babies don't, for sure. But the rest of us, the rest of us, um, the laws are, are all the same for everybody. There isn't any law preventing somebody from going a certain place or doing a certain thing or getting a certain job because of their race. It doesn't exist. So we are free. And you've got guys like Samuel L. Jackson and others who are trying to keep us back in the old days. They, they, there are certain problems that have basically been solved, and no problem would be perfectly solved. But there are certain problems that have basically been solved in America, and there are people very invested in making sure that those problems, that the at least the perception of those problems, stay alive. They won't let us move on. They don't want us to. There's a, a famous quote from Morgan Freeman, who I hope he doesn't participate in this, because he had a quote, I think it was on 60 Minutes a while ago, and he was asked, um, how do we stop racism? And he said, how do you stop racism? Stop talking about it. And I thought that was, for a, for a celebrity, that was rather insightful, and it was a very good point. Especially coming from an older guy. It was interesting to hear him say that, because Morgan Freeman's an older guy. And, he, and when, he was, when he was younger, uh, everyone wasn't actually free, and, the, and, 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 uh, and, and we didn't have all, equal, all have equal rights. So it was interesting that he could, could see that, that, that he had that insight. Because for people in my generation, um, especially people in my generation who grew up on the East Coast, grew up in a, in a diverse area, as uh, you know, a lot of us did. 
it would never really occur to us to be racist. It would never occur to us to to see somebody as inferior or see someone as fundamentally different because of the color of their skin. It wouldn't occur to us. So it, it takes the race baiters like the Al Sharptons of the world and liberal Democrats to come in and try to keep that alive. They try to keep that division there by bringing up the past and drudging up and drag, you know dragging the skeletons out of the closet. They, they want to keep it there because if they would just shut up and move on and stop pretending that we still live in 1940 because we don't and the laws have changed. They have. They're different now. So if the people that wanted it to still be 1940, if they would just shut up and stop already, um, you would see things change dramatically. Because for someone like myself, I grew up from the age of four. I was going to elementary schools with white kids, black kids, Asian kids, Jewish kids, all around. It was. I didn't think anything of it. It didn't occur to me to think anything of it. Racial diversity all around. Ever since I was a little kid, I was used to it from a young age. I never thought anything of it. And the race baiters and the people that are invested in keeping that division there, they see that. They see that if they would shut up and go away and stop talking, um, there would be some semblance of not, you know, I don't want to use the word harmony because it sounds utopian, but there would be some semblance of racial unity that could be easily achieved um, just sort of by default because of the world that we're all growing up in. Uh, right. So, you know, a lot of racism and ethnocentrism, a lot, a lot of that is tribalistic. In other words, if you if you grow up in a in a in a in a tribe, quote unquote, that is one particular thing and you don't encounter anyone else from another tribe, quote unquote, then when you do encounter them for the first time, you're going to see them as different. And which which is OK, because they are different to, to some extent. Nothing wrong with seeing a difference. But instinctually you might interpret that difference as as inferiority you might be afraid of that difference and when you're afraid of it you start to you, you start to imagine that person as inferior right but many of us not not everyone in the country it depends on what region you're in but but many of us millions and millions of us uh in my generation and younger and and even a little little older we grew up in a tribe in our community our you know towns where it's everyone of all different skin colors and religions and everything all around and i know this is supposed to be the classic thing that somebody says when they're racist but i think it is relevant for me to add just to give you a just to give you a an idea of of the context and how i grew up in uh, baltimore county growing up most of my closest friends were not white christian I, I didn't have a lot of white christian friends i had jewish friends indian friends black friends south korean friends i didn't have a lot of white christian friends i had very few and that didn't seem strange to me I was a Christian, still am, came from a devout Christian family, but it didn't seem strange to me. I, I, didn't, I didn't go out looking, fighting. I didn't say, oh, these people aren't like me, I can't be friends with them. I, I'm just, um, I'm not wired that way, and in, and in fact, many, many people in my generation, for all of our flaws, we're just not wired that way. We have our own faults and our own, and our own things that we struggle with um, that are maybe somewhat unique to our generation, but that's really not one of them. Because that's not the world we grew up in. And so the race baiters and uh, the progressives, they still try to paint it like white people, white men in particular, are inherently racist. Just just intrinsically, we, we, we don't like people of other races. We're afraid of them and all this. But those of us in that category, we look at that and we say, what? I don't even understand what you're saying. That could not be further from the truth. That is in no way relevant to my life. 
that what you're saying right now in no way, shape, or form reflects who I am or, or, or the world that I, that I live in. You're, you're living on a different planet saying all that. It makes no sense. Maybe if this was the year 1820, it would make sense, but it's not 1820, as, by the way, progressives constantly remind us. That's the year 2014, you know, so it'll be 2015 soon enough. Okay, well then let it be. As far as the cops are concerned, I, uh, I mean, I, I suppose there's no question that there are racist cops just like there are racist plumbers and racist, uh, you know, grocery store clerks and racist everything. There's, there's racist people out there still. And there are racist uh, black cops and racist white cops and racist cops of all, of all colors and stripes and, and shapes and sizes. But I don't think, again, this is to some extent progressives needing to get with the times a little bit. The biggest problem in the police force it, it has nothing to do with racism. There are issues in the police force. There are temptations that law enforcement officers might be susceptible to, but it's not racist. It's not a racist thing, usually. It might be for some of them, but that's not the overarching problem. The overarching problem for police officers is that they're in a position where they have a lot of power, and they might be tempted to abuse that power, and they might be tempted to, to see themselves as above the law, uh, to see themselves as people who are you know, arbiters of the law and forces of the law, but, not, but, but the law does not apply to them. And that's not the case with all cops or even most cops, but, but that's, a, that's a hazard that comes with the job. Anytime you're in a job or you have power, that's a potential hazard. So we can talk about that with police officers. But to act like it's all race-based is just, that's an, it's antiquated. It reflects, you know, the mentality of people who don't understand the world we're actually living in right now. And I also think, and this is the point I tried to make on Facebook earlier this week, um, that when it comes to cops, you know, we're, we're constantly told that we should understand where criminals are coming from. We should we should sympathize with criminals and understand the, the, the life that they've led and the environment they grew up in and so on and so forth. Um, and, okay, when it comes to just having mercy and, and having love for our fellow man, we should take that stuff into account. It doesn't excuse their behavior. It doesn't mean they shouldn't go to jail if they commit a crime. But when it comes to... Um, judging their acts then yes we should take that into account when it comes to assessing moral culpability for the actions yes we take that into account although as as mortals we're not really in the business of assessing individual moral culpability we're in the business of 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 determining what is a right action and what's a wrong action the cult the individual culpability of the of the actor himself or herself that's not our domain that's god's domain but we can assume because god is just and wise that um, for instance, if, if you have someone who, whether they're black or white, grew up uh, in, in destitute poverty, um, had a father that abandoned them, had an abusive mother, um, just had nothing but bad people and criminals all around them, had absolutely no guidance whatsoever, just lost and confused, and they go out and they make a mistake, they commit a crime, um, God forbid they, they're killed in the act of committing that crime, when they meet God... We don't know what's going to happen. I'm not God. But we do know that God is just and wise and merciful. So he's going to see the totality of this person and the situation that they were in. And we know that he's going to take that into account. So we, we do know that. But when it, com- when it comes to what is right and what's wrong, objectively speaking, the answer there is pretty clear. But the point is, we, we are, we're told to make all these calculations with criminals and to understand all that. My question is, why can't we do that with cops? 
why can't we um, apply some of the same context to police officers? Which isn't to say that we excuse their behavior if they do the wrong thing. But it is to say that we, that we just understand they're in a very stressful position. They're doing a very stressful job. And not only that, but they, part of their job is that they deal with, for lack of a better term, the dregs of humanity on a daily basis. So I try to keep that in mind. You know, I, I've been pulled over several times in my life. I guess what I'm told is that as a white, because I'm white, a white guy, uh, when I'm pulled over, I, I guess I should just be given a warning and, and, and let off the hook. But that hasn't been my experience, even as a white guy. I can tell you that I've been pulled over, and every single time I get a ticket. I've never gotten a warning. I always get a ticket, and I usually get the harshest ticket available, and I'm not rude to the police officers. I try to be very polite. Yes, sir, no, sir, I do all that. I'm not copping an attitude, but I, I don't get off the hook, and they don't cut me any slack. And I've also been pulled out of a car before and given a DUI test, even though I was nowhere near drunk or inebriated or anything but I was pulled out of the car, and I was given the sobriety test, and it was very stressful. It was very humiliating. Of course, I wasn't drunk, so I was sent on my merry way, still given a ticket for something. I don't know. It might have been a headlight or something like that. But the point is, I've had all those experiences as well, even as a white guy. So I don't know. Am I, is it unique for me? I think, and this is sort of getting off the subject, but when it comes to how cops profile people and how they treat them differently based on who they are, yeah, that does happen. That certainly does happen. Uh, because of their experience dealing with people, and they know that certain crimes and certain things are more common with certain types of people. And you, you have to make that calculation as a law enforcement officer. You have to. In other words, if you're on the lookout for a, a, someone who just uh, you know, knocked over a liquor store, um, and you don't have a physical description because they're wearing a mask or whatever, you're, and you're just on the lookout for someone who might have committed the crime, you're probably not looking for an elderly woman, black, white, or otherwise. So there's some profiling that goes on. You're going to probably... Now, there's a small chance it was an elderly woman, but it probably wasn't. Because you can look at who are the people that normally commit those types of crime, and you're going to naturally look in that direction because that's a reasonable and normal thing to do. That's a necessary thing to do. You want to call it profiling, you want to call it discrimination. Well, it's a form of profiling discrimination that we all do on a daily basis. But my point is that the, the profiling and discrimination that, that cops do, um, it, it, I think it's, before we get into races, it has a lot to do with gender. So uh, I certainly noticed that as an 18-year-old guy, as a 19-year-old guy, uh, even though I was white, um, I wasn't cut a lot of slack by police officers. Because it is young men in general who do a lot of these things and commit a lot of these crimes. So it's not just young black men, it's young men who are given the side eye and who are looked at strange. You know, I, I've heard the stories of, you know, black people say, well, you know, I walk into a store and, I'm, and, and people look at me suspiciously. And I'm not saying that hasn't happened. But I think, you know, that's happened to me too, actually, especially as a teenager. I, I, I still remember to this day walking into a drugstore one day when I was, I think I was 16 or 17, and I was walking into the back just to get a soda, and I heard the guy at the front get on his little uh, walkie-talkie thing and radio to whoever was back at the pharmacy, keep an eye on the guy with the hat. I heard that, and I was the only one in the store that just walked in with a hat on. Why did he do that? Because I'm a teenage boy, and teenage boys cause a lot of trouble. That's why. So whatever the reasons and however the profiling works um, in, in my, in my experiences when I've dealt with cops and they've been less than polite 
a little rude, uh, going a little further with things than I think they need to. And, and uh, you know, it's happened to me, and I've, and I've been annoyed about it. Um, I've been ticked off. But I try to remember. I try to, I try to keep something in mind. I try to remember that, yeah, you know, some of these cops are a little jaded, but think about who they're dealing with most of the time. I actually had this conversation with a police officer one time when I was uh, after I'd gotten a ticket and I was at court for it. I forget it was a speeding ticket or something. And um, by the way, I've gotten speeding tickets. I've, I've gotten a number of speeding tickets because I tend to speed. So so that 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 happens. So if you're getting a lot of speeding tickets, it might be because you speed a lot. If you get arrested a lot, it might be because you're committing a lot of crimes. That that might be the reason. Maybe you should look into that. So I, that, that's one thing that I had to come to terms with. So why am I getting so many speeding tickets? Oh, I'm speeding. Well, that's uh, that might be the reason. But I remember I was at the the um, the court, and of course you show up at the court, and they always tell you. Uh, maybe it varies by state, but the state that I was in, you know, if if the police officer doesn't show up within whatever thirty minutes or an hour, um, then you're you're off scot free essentially. You know, if they're not there to argue their side of the case, then you're off scot free. And so I'm sitting in the uh, in the little waiting room. And I'm looking at the clock, and I'm just counting down the minutes and praying you won't show up. And it was about a minute until the deadline. This guy walks in, and I'm, oh, man. And he pulls me aside, and he talks to me, you know, about the ticket. And um, he was relatively friendly. He was more friendly than he was when he actually gave me the ticket. And he actually, and he said to me, I don't know if he gives a speech to everybody, but he, but he, he said to me, it stuck out, stuck out to me. He said, um, he said, you know, I really hate doing this. I hate giving people tickets because, uh, you know, as a police officer, I deal with a lot of criminals every single day. And then the only time that I really come in contact with just normal law-abiding people is when I'm giving them speeding tickets. And I really hate it. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it like that. And so I think we can get into a conversation about how police officer, officers are used uh, I think police officers should engage with the community more than than they do, and it's not always their fault individually if they're not engaging with the community in a non-law enforcement you know capacity, um, because they're sent out and they're told, hey, get speeding tickets, do this, do that. I mean, they, they're they're given assignments, but and and I don't think that we should that we should allocate law enforcement resources to to constantly setting up speed traps and keep making sure people aren't talking on the phone or. Or, or, or they have their seatbelt on. I think there's way too much of that going on. I think police officers are used as fundraisers for the state way too often, and I'm sure most cops probably agree with that because that's not why they signed on. They didn't sign on so that they could be glorified parking attendants. They didn't sign on so that they could be uh, glorified IRS agents either. So that's a conversation we could have, but we always have to keep in mind that uh, you know, where I lived and I got the speeding ticket, it was in a, a low-income area in Delaware, and the kind of area where um, low income and largely white and Hispanic. But the kind of area where you have a lot of domestic assault um, things and you have a lot of uh, problems with, you know, uh, drug abuse. And so right down the street from where I live, there was this motel that was just known as a spot where people would go and, you know, get hookers and, and smoke crack and all that kind of thing. So that's the sort of environment. And I thought, well, this is, these are the people that cops are dealing with most of the time. Just these, just the, the losers, the losers of humanity in the worst possible ways.
the drug addicts, the pimps, the domestic abusers, the drunks. I mean, the these are these are the people cops are are dealing with and encountering all the time every day. And so I can see how that might make you a little jaded and it might make you a little harsh. Not excusing it, but I can see how that would happen. And maybe it's partly selfish on my part because I know that if I was in that spot, that's how I would be. It would have that effect on me, and I know it. I know it would. I try to keep that in mind, and I try to so I, I try to put some context on the actions of these police officers, just as we're asked to put context around the actions of the criminals. If we can do it for the criminals, we should do it for the cops too. I think it's only fair. Okay, final uh, item. Final item on the list, we have Jeb Bush announcing that he might in the future announce that he's going to announce that he's going to be president. I think the way he put it is uh, he said he's actively exploring. a. It was an official announcement that an official announcement might be coming. He's actively exploring a White House run in 2016. Jeb Bush, of course, if you're not familiar, is the brother of George W. Bush, and the son of George H.W. Bush. Now, here's what I'll say about Jeb Bush running for president. Obviously, he's free to do that. He's allowed to do it. He can run for president if he wants to. I'm not suggesting that there should be any laws preventing another Bush from running for president. However, if Jeb Bush, and this is a big if, and I, I don't, I'm not sure that I see it happening, but if Jeb Bush is actually the nominee for the Republican Party, I really am done with the Republicans. I'm just done with them. Now, in truth, in fairness, and in truth, I've I've kind of been done with the Republicans for a long time uh, because they've just been incapable, unwilling, uninterested in actually representing the values of their supposed base. You look at what they've done in the last two presidential elections, it's just there there was no excuse to lose either of them. But they lost handily because the Republican establishment is, for one thing, stupid, cowardly, and I say again, uninterested in actually being conservative. And it's about time that conservatives wake up to that fact. The Republican Party is not interested in representing your values. That's not what they're in business of doing. They're in the business of getting power. They just it's a struggle for power between these two between these two parties that are really different sides of essentially the same coin. But that's why the Republicans get in office. They don't cut down the size of government. They don't do that. When was the last time a, a, a Republican president has cut the size of government? It's never happened. You you have to go back to Calvin Coolidge maybe to find an example of it. But um, in the last several decades, it has not happened. In fact, the Republican presidents have gotten in and also expanded the size of the government just in different areas. Why is that? Why do you think Republicans get in office and expand the size of government? Because when you're in charge of the government, you want it to be big, don't you? I've been having this debate with Republicans for years, and I think part of the problem with Republican voters is they, they have no memory or they just have a very strange warped memory. In fact, when I was talking with uh, people on Facebook yesterday about the Jeb Bush thing, and and certainly there are a lot of people very opposed to a Jeb Bush candidacy, um, but then there were quite a quite you know a, a large number of other people who said number one, now you shouldn't judge him based on his last name, and we'll get to that in a minute. 
But also, you know, I was a, a, George W. Bush was a great president. I saw that I've heard that phrase spoken by people with a straight face. And I've, I've seen it written a great president. Now it's okay. You know, you're, you, you don't like Democrats. You don't like liberals. Neither do I Democrats and liberals hate George W. Bush. Okay. But just because they hate him doesn't mean you have to turn around and say the exact opposite thing. You don't have to hate him either. We shouldn't hate people in general. And if you want to think that he's a sincere person, not a bad man. Great. You can think that. And I might agree with you. But to say he was a great president is just absurd. I, I mean, it, and from a conservative standpoint, this was a big government president. This was a big spending president. This was a nanny state president. This was an open borders president. This was not a conservative president by any stretch of the imagination, George Bush. By any stretch of the imagination was he a conservative president. And he was not a great president or even a good one. He was disastrous. He really was. There's no getting around that fact. I don't think a single Republican on the planet would have argued eight years ago that George Bush was a great or good or even fine president. Not a single one. But now eight years later, it's like, oh, it was eight years ago. I don't even, you know, he's good all of a sudden. Why not try another Bush? But look, I don't want to get into an argument about the Bushes and the merits of George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush. I don't want to get into that. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter, actually, in this case. And I don't even want to get into the merits of, of Jeb Bush. I mean, yeah, when you look at his merits, you see a centrist, squishy, moderate Republican, the, the kind of Republicans that always lose presidential elections, and the kind of president guarantee, kind of Republican guaranteed to lose another one. Um, so even, even just looking at him, pretending that his last name is uh, Smith or Johnson or anything else, there's still no reason to vote for him. But I'm going to put all that to the side because I would contest, despite what some people have told me, oh, don't judge him by his last name. I say you absolutely do judge him by his last name. And let me tell you something. The Founding Fathers, if they were around today, they would not be like some people who follow my blog who just scoff at and dismiss the uh, anti-dynasty argument. They're, at the very least, you have to take that argument seriously because there is a, there is a real problem. There is a real hazard and having political dynasties. It's not a good thing for the republic. It's not a good thing for, for, any, demo, for any democracy, representative or otherwise. You can tell me about John Adams and John Quincy Adams. You can tell me about the Roosevelts. Um, but just because it's happened in the past doesn't mean that it should keep happening. And actually, it hasn't really happened in the past. John Adams and John Quincy Adams were uh, uh, elected many years apart, and it ended there. There weren't any other... Adams presidents. The Roosevelts were distant cousins and they were also elected years apart and there hasn't been another Roosevelt president. In this case, after, after uh, FDR. In this case, we would have, if George, if Jeb Bush were to be elected president, which I don't think he can be, but if he were to be elected president, we would have um, the third Bush in the same immediate family elected president within eight years of each other. Eight years, as in one Bush's term ends, and eight years later, another Bush comes in. So we've got a father and then two brothers. We have the entire male Bush immediate family elected president. That is completely unprecedented in American history, and it ought to stay unprecedented. You're just not thinking clearly. You're not being smart about it. If you don't take this seriously, this problem seriously, because the founding fathers absolutely would have. It is not, you do not want political dynasties 
in America. You do not want the power concentrated in these small little groups. It's not a good idea to have small elite groups of powerful people. It's inevitable to a certain extent. We have that now. But to, but to coronate an entire family president... That is the very definition of oligarchy. It might not be monarchy it's it, because you know they were elected, but it is an oligarchy. Small groups of elite people in charge of the country. That's an oligarchy, and that's what that would be. Barbara Bush, Jeb Bush's mother, she was interviewed a while ago, and she said, hey, I have no doubt that he's the best person in the country for the job. She's allowed to say that she's, she's his mother, and I, I would expect her to say that. I would expect my mom to say that about me. I don't know if she actually would, but 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 you know it would be nice if she did. So she she's she's uh, his mother. She could say that. But for the rest of us, there's just no possible way that for um, what 30 years running, the best man in the country, the best human being in the country, uh, the best conservative in the country for 30 years running to be president is a Bush. You're telling me that you love the Bushes so much that you think their family is that special. That there, for 30 years, there has been no one else who, who, who's qualified to be president. They all came from the Bush family. It's uh, ridiculous. Ridiculous. If he's nominated, I, I'm going to know that I just, I have nothing in common with Republican voters. I, this is because this is not in keeping with the spirit of a constitutional republic. This is, this is just, these are just henpecked, cowed people um, who, 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 who just dutifully go and vote for the elite because, 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 uh, because they think that's what they're supposed to do. I, I can't be politically associated with people like that. Now, I don't think he will win the nomination. And if he does, it's going to be a landslide disaster. If I have to lay this out for Republicans, I will. Because it's really simple. I mean, this is really so simple. And um, uh, here's how you win. Here's how you win. Especially if, if Hillary Clinton is the other, is the Democrat nominee. Here's how you win. You position yourself as an outsider, as an insurgent. You're young, you're fresh, you're new, you've got new ideas. You're, you're running against not just the, the, uh, the Obama years, but also the Bush years. Because you know that all of the voters, most of the voters in America, have lived through the, the Bush years and the Obama years. And we've seen the, how the economy has tanked. And we've seen all these foreign entanglements that we've been in, in, entrenched in. And we've seen the disastrous effect that both presidents have had on this country. And we don't want any more of it. Because we've lived through it. We've seen it. So if you're running as a Republican, you're running against all of it. You have to do that. You're not going to win otherwise. You have to be new. You have to be fresh. You have to have new ideas. You have to go in and be articulate and be, and be commanding and be, and be charismatic and be able to, to express these ideas and to argue with the other side and to argue with liberals and not, and not back down and not moderate your position. That's what you have to do. You're not going to win otherwise. This will be the case, I think, at any time in American history, but especially now, especially now in the Internet age, in the social media age, in the the 24-hour cable news age, personality, perception anyway of being fresh and young and new, it's so important. It's never been more important. You can't win the presidency without it. Look at 2008 with Barack Obama. Now, he was not fresh and new, and he didn't have great ideas, and he wasn't in any of that. But he was able to position himself that way. That was his brand, and they were very good at branding him that, as that. And it, it started to fade immediately as soon as he became president. But that's how he won anyway. And what do the Republicans do? What do the idiot Republicans do up against this supposedly fresh, young, new, you know, hope and change it's a, it, guy? Um, what do they do? They put John McCain. They put a 70-plus-year-old man 
who's been in Washington for decades up against him. And it was just, and Obama just walked to victory. It could not have been easier. They, they, they could not have planned that better themselves. They're going for the fresh new stick. And, uh, and what do the Republicans do? They nominate a 70-year-old man who's been in Washington for 30 years. Just feeding right into the narrative. It could not have been easier. And that's what the Republicans do. Because the Republican establishment, they're idiots. They're just stupid. And they're cowards. And I can't say that enough. So if you want to win this time, you've got to have some guts and you've got to find somebody who can get up there and be fresh. Another Bush will not do it. You take, you take the narrative away from You steal the narrative away from yourself. It's your best selling point. If you're up against Hillary Clinton especially, your number one selling point is that it's Hillary Clinton, it's the same old thing, it's the establishment, she's been in Washington forever, her husband was president, we don't need another Clinton, we don't need another Obama, we don't need another Bush either, we need a new thing, this is a new, you know, we're, we're, we're going into a new future. That's what you have, that's how you win the voters, that's how you win older voters, that's how you win younger voters especially, that's how you win everybody. But you take that away from yourself if you put a Bush up against her. Your number one selling point is gone, you've stolen it. It's, ugh, ugh, ugh. Oh, man, I can't believe it. There are people out there right now who could run as insurgents, even if they're not actually insurgents because they've also been in Washington for a little while. Um, there are people that could run as insurgents. You get a good Republican governor. You know, they haven't been in Wa- They've been in political power. They haven't been in Washington. Or you find one of these younger, I like the idea of a governor, but you find one of these younger senators. You, that's your only chance of winning. Your only chance. And by the way, not only your only chance of winning, but it's your only chance of winning and then making a difference once you do win. Jeb Bush isn't going to make a difference. Jeb Bush isn't going to get in there and be the dynamic leader this country needs. It's just going to be another Bush. The Bush clan, the Bush team, the Bush people, they'll be in charge again. That, and that's why you do hold someone's name against them. Because it's not just he's not just a single guy by himself. Don't be naive. He's got a whole team, a whole clan behind him, just like the Clintons do. They've got a whole group. They're all together. So you, you elect Hillary Clinton, you've also elected Bill Clinton and all, the, and all the Clinton people. You elect Bush, you've elected George Bush, you've elected all the Bushes and all the Bush people and the Bush team. You've put them all in office. It's not just one guy, it's everybody. I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm, it's just, I'm sorry. This, well, I don't know, I'm not sorry, I'm not going to apologize. This just makes me heated that anyone would even consider this. And honestly, if Jeb Bush was a, was a, a man of great integrity and a great leader, he wouldn't even run because he would know. He would say to himself, you know what, this, it's, the power does not need to be concentrated among Bushes. I'm not entitled to this. The Bushes have had their time. Let somebody else get in there. To have another Bush candidacy would be a disaster, and I'm not going to do it. That's what he would say to himself. He wouldn't even entertain it. In fact, he would get up and he would declare, I don't need this. I don't need to be president. I'm not the best person in the entire world for the job. Um, go, go find somebody else. Go find someone who's, who's newer, who's got new ideas. Go find them. I'm not the guy. That's what he would do. That's what he would do if he was not power-obsessed and if he was actually worried about doing what's best for the country and best for the party, although, you know, what's best for the country, when you're doing what's best for the country, what's best for the party makes no difference. But in any case, if he was interested in doing what's best for the party, what's best for the country, uh, what's best for all American citizens, that's what he would do. We have a lot of problems in this country, and we need a leader, not a, a political dynasty, not some self-entitled person from a political dynasty. That's not what we need. And, you know, the Bushes and the Clintons, it, uh, it, uh, I said they have their own people, their own clan. 
their clans have very much merged over the years. They're, they're best friends. They're pals. You ever see George W. Bush and Bill Clinton talk, you know, tweeting each other and, and going back and forth on Instagram? They're Biff's best friends forever, those two, because they go to the same cocktail parties and they're part of the same elite group. And they, and they all want the same thing, which is just for their ilk to stay in charge. That's what they want. They're not getting together and talking about the Constitution and real ways to solve problems in America and all this kind of stuff. That's not what they're doing. They're just plotting ways to stay in charge. That's all this is about. If, if, the, if Republican voters decide to go along with it willingly, then I'm done with Republicans and I'm done with Republican voters. Then it's time. Then it's third party time. Then it is full on third party time. If that's what Republicans show themselves to be. All right, that's it for me. I will uh, talk to you after Christmas. So again, I say uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, blessed time with your family. Um, and I'll talk to you in a little bit. Acruce salus. See you later.